what we've been looking at in this E4 series is Easter through four perspectives. Now, um, if it's really fascinating. We've mentioned it on a number of occasions. The significance that the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give to the, uh, the death of the founder of the church, Jesus Christ. Uh, that's significant. Uh, normally, when you're talking about starting some significant movement, the thing that you would focus on is the life and the death is the unfortunate event which happens at the end of a life which shapes the future and shapes the movement. In actual fact, just by taking that, if you like, helicopter view, looking at it from a, the overview perspective, when you just look at the significance of the amount of narrative that each of the Gospels give to the death of Jesus, just that speaks volumes to us. It says very powerfully to us that the death of Jesus Christ is one of those key events which means that the succeeding success of the church is based on that event. Uh, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus is the very reason why we are here today. Why people meet in the name of Jesus Christ and worship Jesus Christ is because we declare and we proclaim that Jesus Christ was none less than the Son of God come into the world, that He died, that He was buried, that He rose again, that He ascended and He lives in heaven. That foundation is all tied together through the Easter accounts. So inevitably, because four writers are all writing about that particular event, there is a significant amount of overlap. A lot of them talk about the same events. Uh, however, what we've done is we've just pulled out four events, one from each of the Gospels, which speak specifically uh, and uniquely about a particular facet of that time, something which only occurs in each of those, what, those one Gospels. And we come to this uh, particular event uh, in the Gospel of John. It's the last of our four views of the Easter time. It's an occasion where really what comes into focus and what we're calling this afternoon's um, thought centered around the idea of the belief. Belief. And we see that belief coming to fruition in a man called Thomas. Belief is an interesting thing, isn't it? One of the things that I think, um, if, if, you're over sort of, if you're over sort of 40, 45, may, maybe a little bit younger, if you're o over that sort of age, we've grown up in a world which has been very, very focused. It's been driven by the idea that the things that we believe in are the things that we are able to prove. We've lived, if you like, at the back end of a world which was committed to the project of science or the project of scientific proof. That's the world that many of us in here grew up in. We are living in absolutely fascinating times. They are fascinating times because during that period of time where absolute truth was what you could prove by scientific experiment or whatever it might be, there has been a shaking and a destabilizing of that foundation. 
And what has emerged is the idea that there are things that we can't prove, but there are things that we believe in. And so we can believe in all sorts of different things. The idea of these things which we hold dearly and we hold tightly are no longer things which we can absolutely go to the lab and prove. There's been a shift. And now we have this emerging over the past probably 25 years or so, this emerging growth of all sorts of ideas of spirituality, all sorts of ideas of emerging beliefs. And through all those changes, which have gone on in different ways over the past 2,000 years, as emphasis has changed and, and moved around, there has been this constant message of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, which has remained and has not been knocked sideways by any of those changing perspectives. That's interesting. So now as we are entering into a new changing perspective, I want to encourage you to think about what it means to believe and to be confident that in this change that the whole of the world is going through at this moment in time, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the idea of a mystical perspective, the idea of a supernatural perspective, however you want to describe it, it continues, but it also continues with a particular perspective which has been consistent all the time, and that is that it continues to make demands of us. So we're going to look at belief, okay, and we're going to look at demands that that belief makes of us. Just keep those two things in the front of your mind as we take this journey. The reason I mention them it's because I think we probably see an emerging idea that, you know what, I can believe all sorts of different... I'm no longer bound to be held to account to be able to prove things. But alongside that, what I think we see is that all of those emerging beliefs are all quite selfish. It's all about my perspective. It's all about what I feel best about, what I feel good about, what makes me feel comfortable. I want to just ask you, if your beliefs are the kind of beliefs that only ever make you feel comfortable, is that a good set of beliefs? Or is there a sense in which we, we all need whatever we believe in at times to confront us and to challenge us and to make us realize that we actually need to change as people. Now we can come from that, from all sorts of di different directions, but I want to suggest right at the beginning that the Christian message has always, for every culture, for every time in history over the past 2,000 years, for every perspective, it has always uniquely had that quality. That it never leaves any of us feeling 100% comfortable. No matter where we come from, it always challenges us. It always makes us reassess 
our lives because it's not an internalized thought. It's something which is declared outside of us. So let's have a look at how this uh, story unfolds. The first thing that we see is we see that it's, we locate this event in time. And the first thing that we see is an appearance. It's the first, the evening of the first day of the week. So it's that moment in time where we've been reading in various uh, accounts of the, this incredible event which is being declared that various people who have been followers of Jesus uh, are making this astounding claim. S- the, the word is getting round. Some are saying Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He's alive. I want you to just place yourself in that moment. Place yourself in that day just for a few minutes. Imagine what it must have been like. You've been for however long, maybe you've been following this Jesus of Nazareth for three years, maybe for 18 months or maybe just for a year or six months. But certainly what you've done is you, as a follower of Jesus, you've become invested, you really believe in this Jesus. He's saying things which you, you really hold on to and, and he's reshaped your life and then all of a sudden, as if something dramatic breaks in, which is what death is, Jesus is dead. And all of that hope is lost. And now, people are saying that what, in human terms, stops everything has been reversed. Words are getting out. Jesus is alive. But the other thing that we see is we see a little indication of the attitude of you and me if we were followers of Jesus at that time. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, so there's a group of us together, and the doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. It's what John does for us. He says where our minds are. It's all well and good, isn't it, for us now that the whole of the story has unfolded, we see how it works out. It's all well and good for us now to be really positive and confident and feel as if we can really declare something with absolute confidence. The reality is, on that particular day, if we took ourselves back then, we would be scared people because our leader has been taken by the Jews. He's been held up in a kangaroo court and false uh, accusations have been made, false witnesses have been brought in, and it's as though this trial, which is an absolute travesty, has ended up with the possibility of the, the innocent being found guilty. And we are terrified. We are fearful of the Jewish leaders, because what we see is that Jesus has finally, we've seen it coming, Over time, he's been building up in this confrontation to the Jewish leaders. He's been saying that your approach is not consistent. And he reached this point where he says, wow. And now Jesus breaks in and he's gone and he's dead. And now we are scared. And so we have the door locked. And and I, I, I think I don't, I can't explain this. I can't explain this. There are a few things that I know about Jesus I know that his bodily resurrection is his bodily resurrection. We're going to see this in a few minutes. I know that he ate fish and drank 
wine and drank bread. I know that he was a living body, but he appears in that locked room. There is a miraculous dimension to Jesus which emerges more powerfully after he has risen. He appears to them in that room. There he is. For those who were there, everything changes. What it also says to you and me, and the way that it creates, if you like, a, a foundation for the rest of the story is this. The claims of Jesus being risen are based on people who saw Jesus risen. That's precisely what John is developing here. There's been this bubbling bit of news coming in from the very morning, early on in the morning, where some of the women have seen Jesus alive. And, And do we believe that? Do we believe what they have seen? And now Jesus appears in the middle of that gathering and we see Jesus And the principle of the resurrection of Jesus is based on the fact that there were people who saw him. He was there. He was real. He was physically alive. And that's one of the claims that John is beginning to make. But there is also another particular perspective that we see is that Jesus is here to reverse their fears. Look what he says, peace be with you. Isn't that a great phrase? Isn't it such a timely phrase? Isn't it precisely what Jesus again and again delivers? Not just back there, but in His continuing ministry to us, in our own situations, in whatever set of fears or concerns that we might have, what He promised was the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Encourager, the supporter, to be present with us so that those same words that he conveys to that little group are also conveyed to you and me today. Peace be with you. We can't translate our fears to exactly map onto their fears. They they were fearful because their leader Jesus had been killed through a kangaroo court and crucifixion. They were fearful of the rising of the Jewish leadership. But the reality is that you and me, in the world that we live in today, can have all sorts of reasons why we might be fearful, can't we? There are lots of reasons why this world is a fearful place. There are things going on that are changing the world in uncomfortable and frightening ways. There are personal events which go on in our lives which cause us to have what? We have fear rising up. What is fear? It's the expression of feeling as though there is no control over this situation. I can't do anything about this situation. Can I actually change the economy? Can I change the power of militant religious movements? Can I change? I am powerless against that. What do I need? I need a Savior who is able to speak to me by the power of the Holy Spirit through His Word and say to me in my own situation, peace be with you. How can He say that? 
Well, he can say it because he's demonstrated he's in control. He's in control because the very thing that feared, seemed fearful, he's, he's beaten. He's risen to, uh, from the dead. And he's able, therefore, to say, with authority, peace be with you. I am in control. So that's the first thing that we see. But the second thing that we see is that one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not there. So we see the appearance. Secondly, we see the doubt. Verse, uh, verse um, 24, well, 23 um, says, sorry, verse 24 says, now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. There's the, there's the statement. This building uh, body of evidence, this building body of statements, the one statement from the women in the morning, then Jesus appears to this whole group. And there's a, a bigger group of them are now saying to Thomas, Believe, because we've seen him. What's his response? I love Thomas. I love Thomas because I feel as though Thomas says what I think I probably would have said. I'll be honest with you. I think his mind is probably where my mind would have been at that moment in time. He's saying, unless... I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Kind of reveals a little bit about what Thomas is like, doesn't it? What kind of person he is. Or does it? Let's just think for a few minutes. Who's giving him the message? Who's giving Thomas this message? A group of disciples who he has spent the past three years with in the most intensive situations. They have gone through thick and thin together. They've been alongside Jesus in all sorts of different situations and he has been with them day by day by day by day. It's not some distant person who's saying Thomas believe. It's a group of people who, if you like, it's that kind of guys, band of brothers who are really tight, who are really close, who have that confidence in each other, the kind of sense of, I've got you back. I trust you with everything. You know the kind of guys that if you go onto the pitch together or whatever it might be, they're the guys that I want to have with me because we've been through it together. That's what, that's what tight groups, both men and women, do as we spend time together, as we go through stuff together, we bond together, we knit together, we have confidence in each other, and we believe each other, don't we? We believe in the things that have been said. I know there's banter. <laughs> I know there's a bit of a laugh every now and then, and the last one into the room is the one who has his leg pulled with a whole load of... A, kind of story that goes off. But it's not like that. This is real stuff. And Thomas is being told by a group of people who he has an intimate relationship of confidence in, and he still does not believe. 
I think that says deeply, perhaps, how massively affected he had been by the previous days. This has really got to Thomas. Of course he believes these guys. These aren't strangers. But at the same time, it's a little window, perhaps, that Thomas is racked with grief. This seems impossible to beat. I love these guys, but you know, I am too, it is too powerful, it is too clear, it is too raw for me to actually believe anything other than Jesus is dead. Maybe as well, Thomas is thinking, Jesus, who I have seen, Raise people from the dead. Change water into wine. Heal the blind. Heal the deaf. Heal the leper. Feed people from a small lunch to 5,000 people. I have seen this Jesus performing remarkable miracles. And yet he can't believe that Jesus might be able to perform this miracle. I, I'm, I, am, I was at one time convinced that Thomas was just the kind of guy that is this, you know, give me, the, give me the scientific evidential proof, all of that kind of thing. I am more convinced now that Thomas is expressing profound doubt because he is broken and he is hurt And he is fearful. And that's what doubt does to us. It creates those experiences. We are there so often. We are doubting so often. Because we are so broken. We are so shattered. Our emotional, mental perspective is so destroyed that we start to believe and we start to think things that in another set of circumstances we would not have had those doubts. Let me just encourage you. You might think that you've been a believer for lots of years and you might think, this Thomas, I I just couldn't go there now. I couldn't doubt like that because I've loved the Lord Jesus for lots of years. I want to encourage you in advance (laughs) that you may well face a time in life where the events of life are just so overwhelming that you end up in a very, very surprising place. And you are doubting when you didn't think you would ever be a doubter. I know because I've been there. I've been in that place. I've been where Thomas is. I've been the one who has doubted. When my, my, all of my experience previously as a believer in Jesus would say that I shouldn't doubt. And yet there are moments and events in life which, which gather together and put us in a place where we don't expect that we would ever be. I love Thomas for that reason. I love him because I think he's real in terms of where we are. He doesn't give this false perspective of everything's fine, everything's right. At least what he does there is this, is he puts his doubts out there and he's honest about how he really feels. And it's when he does that, 
It's when he's honest about how he really feels that there is the possibility of moving forward. That's when he can move forward. When he keeps saying, oh, you know, everything's fine. Oh, you've, you've, you, oh Jesus has risen. Yeah, fine. Well, I'm just going to head off. A bit like the group that we saw last time who went off for a, a trip to Emmaus on the same day that they'd been hearing that Jesus had risen. Maybe Thomas was at least honest about where he was. Because believing and trusting in something when we are so broken, when we are so fearful, exposes us to what? Even more broken heart. Yeah? When we know that our heart is broken, when we know that we are emotionally in an incredibly vulnerable place, and those doubts arise, why? Because it might be possible that we might be broken even more. We might be let down even more. We might be hurt even more. So our natural tendency is to go, to shy away from that and to to doubt so that we don't place ourselves in more of an emotionally vulnerable position. How often, how does Thomas relate to us today? Doubt, in human terms, is understandable. It is. Doubt is, in human terms, understandable. And yet the risen Jesus is this remarkable claim is a real hope in our doubt. Let's see how the story unfolds. First thing that we see is Thomas's doubt is not resolved quickly. Do you know what? I've read this story I don't know how many times, and this is the first time I really noticed this. It's the first time that I really noticed a week later his disciples were in the house again. Where was Thomas? He's living in doubt for a week. He's not, he's not happily resolved very quickly. What does that say about God? What does it say about God? It says that He is willing. He's willing for us to be in a place for a period of time. Our, our faith is not a fear. The security of our faith is not a fearful thing for Him. We haven't got a God who's looking down on His children and thinking, oh, better move really quickly, otherwise they won't believe me. He's able to say, do you know what? I love you so much. I have got so much for you to learn. I've got so much for you to understand. There are so many things that you can learn from me that I am prepared to allow you to be there because you are safe. What would you do? What would I do? If I, was, if, if I was in that position, and I heard, I heard Thomas saying that, it, uh, we'd dive in, wouldn't we? We'd, we'd be straight in there. Uh, and we'd be trying to resolve things and make it okay and prove that it's all right, Thomas, I'm here. And yet Jesus allows Thomas to be in that doubt for a week. A week of Thomas living in doubt. And then he appears while Thomas is there. A week later... <laughs> And look how gracious he is. It seems as though there's no conversation that goes on. But it seems as though Jesus 
engages with Thomas in such a specific way that it deals directly with his very doubt. Look at what Thomas said earlier. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus turns up and he says, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Maybe it's our... Maybe it's our heritage, maybe it's our traditions, whatever it might be. Maybe it's our kind of use of language. I've always thought of that stop doubting and believe as being one of those things which is a bit of a reprimand. And when I see the way Jesus is prepared to go and engage with Thomas in exactly the areas where he is absolutely fearful of, I think it's actually, do you know what? Don't stay in that place anymore, Thomas. Don't stay in that place of doubt. Why? Is a place of doubt ever a a good place to be in? Never is, is it? Do we ever want to see the ones that we love going through a painful experience? No. We never want that. We want them to be well. We want them to be at peace inside. We want them to be resolved deeply and relaxed comfortably deep inside. And so when Jesus says, stop doubting and believe, I think he's saying, Thomas, don't stay in that place anymore. Believe in me. Believe in me. Don't stay in a place of doubt. I am here. That's great news, isn't it? That was great news for that moment, in that moment for Thomas. But there are three words, no, five words, but three key words which are uttered. Jesus says, believe. And Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. He's making massive statements there. He's saying, I believe that you are no less than the God of heaven and earth. I believe now without any shadow of a doubt that you are God present. But that, that can be a statement which is irrelevant to my human life. But when he says, my Lord and my God, it says everything. It says, I believe that you are God, but I also believe that you are my Lord. I believe in you, and you change my life. I believe in you. That's that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We said at the beginning that we could have all sorts of beliefs. Now, they could be internalized. We could think whatever we want. But the Christian message says that belief in Jesus makes demands of us. I was reading a few years ago Chris Hoy's biography, uh, autobiography, well, he probably had a ghostwriter. Chris, Chris Hoy's biography, cyclist, uh, hugely successful, uh, world champion, Olympian, most successful Olympian in British history, incredible guy, fantastic. I was reading about his dad, You see old Mr. Hoy, 
at so many of the races, and he's there cheering on with Chris's mum. Uh, and you read about what, it, what their life was when, when they were kids. He lived up in Scotland, Chris, and uh, he was into BMX racing. That's where he first started racing. And um, his dad, he believed in him. Hold that, mind, uh, that thought in your mind. He believed in him. He saw, he saw in his lad something. And what did he do? All the races, pretty much, for BMXing were in, on the south of England, apparently, at that time. Uh, and so what he did in their estate car, he put a mattress in the boot of the estate car. These in the days probably before seatbelts. Don't do this at home. He put a mattress in the estate car. He threw the BMX bike in the back. And, and he'd take Chris on a Friday night. And Chris would sleep on the mattress as his dad drove from Scotland all the way to the south coast. On the Saturday, Chris would race. His dad would try to get some kip. They'd sleep and then he'd drive Chris back on the Saturday night as Chris slept on the mattress in the back of the car and his dad drove him back on Saturday night, Sunday morning, getting back on Sunday morning, back up into Scotland. That was the pattern of their life, summer after summer, as Chris was racing BMXs. Because <laughs> he believed in him. Do you know what believing in somebody means? You are no longer your own. When you believe in somebody, when you are invested in somebody, you are no longer your own. You are no longer free. Now, now that might sound in our world the most terrifying prospect because what we want is to be free. And yet believing in Jesus says you are no longer free. You belong to me. When I believe in Jesus, it means that I am no longer free for Paul Howell anymore. I am committed to that Jesus because he is my Lord. He's my Lord. And what he wants for me, because he's the kind of Jesus who will resolve my doubt, he wants the best for me. He loves me. I believe him because he died for me. I believe him because he sacrificed himself for me. I believe him because he left heaven and all of the glory and majesty of heaven and came to this world for me. That's why I believe in him. Not because he's some ogre lord who wants his pound of flesh out of his serfs. I believe him because he loved me, loves me and died and gave himself for me. And that belief means that I am no longer my own. He is my Lord. It changes me. It makes demands of me. And you say, well, that's great. That's fantastic. That's for Thomas. And then John turns around and he says, there's a reason why I've told you this. Uh, and we're going to close with this because it makes mass demand. The story of Jesus makes mass demand. It makes demands on all of us as we hear this recounted. Because John says, and if you like, this, this for me, this little, these couple of verses makes sense of the whole of John. It's the purpose that John wrote his account. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. In other words, Jesus did all sorts of incredible things, but the ones that I'm recording 
are specifically the ones that I've shaped into a narrative because these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You know, Chris Hoistad, I wonder what it must have felt like when all of that belief found resonance in the Olympic Stadium in London as he is securing his record-breaking gold medal. At that moment, all of that belief is just worth everything, isn't it? It's just worth everything. The fact that I was not my own during all of those years doesn't matter a jot. When Jesus returns in all of His incredible, powerful, amazing, majestic glory, and He gathers together all of His people and He says, you are mine, what does this mean now? That is everything. And if we can relate that everything to the kind of passing moment of an Olympic gold medal and begin to see a little bit of resonance, imagine what it will be like on that day when crowns of gold are hounded out to those who have secured eternal life and we'll cast them down and we'll say, do you know what? It is all about you. But you know what? I am so glad that I am here to say it's all about you because this is breathtaking. That's life.